Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 7. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. I believe this is going to be our finest hour. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. The hour is late, the time is short, and the storm is coming. So this is your opportunity for a systems check. I'm here to wake up the sleeping servants of Yahweh God and equip them for the last days. I do that by teaching discernment, pouring over prophecies, treating the infection of mystery Babylon in the church, and giving you courage. My book is Leviathan's Ruse, the comprehensive guide to the battle between good and evil. My website is watchmanalexander.com. And speaking of my website, I have a new page on there called the Recommended Resources page. You'll see a link titled Resources in the navigation bar at the top of the site. That page is full of all kinds of resources that I personally use and recommend. So check it out, because I'm sure some of the resources there will be as helpful to you as they have been to me. Today's show is part two of a discussion about prophecy. Last time I talked about prophecies that have been given to me and my mother, but this time we're going to talk about prophecy in general. And we're going to look at seven ways that we can test prophecies to see whether or not they are from Adonai. Also, I'm going to bring up some false teachers, some false prophets, and some very dangerous movements that I believe we all need to be aware of, especially for those of us who live in the Western world and speak English because we're way more likely to run into these characters. You know, when it comes to prophecies about the future that may affect more than just the prophet, they may affect the public at large, like my vision of nuclear attack on America. That affects a lot of people, potentially, if it's true. But you shouldn't just take my word for it. You shouldn't just take any prophet's word for it. There's got to be a verification process. Because there are a lot of charlatans out there making stuff up. You know, you don't know. Maybe I'm delusional or I have a lying spirit. The Bible says to test everything to see if it be true. So believing me without validating my claims would be foolish. Do you remember the War of the Worlds radio broadcast back in the 19... 30s, I want to say it was, by Orson Welles, his radio audience panicked. Many of those who were listening panicked. I'm sure not everyone, but many did when they heard that the world was being invaded by Martians. Now, this was a radio drama, but many people mistakenly believed that it was real reporting. Part of the problem was that even though he said at the beginning that it was fictitious, A lot of people were listening to another more popular radio show, and when that got finished, they switched over, and it was midway through the broadcast. And it was a very realistic broadcast that was uh, meant to sound like a real news report. So many listeners assumed that what they were hearing was true, 
and they took action and they went around screaming that people needed to prepare for the end and they went buying a bunch of stuff and whatever else. I think I know they were telling a lot of cops or they were uh, asking a lot of police officers you know, what to do. It caused a lot of traffic jams. There were some big problems that resulted from this. It was cleared up pretty quickly, but if it hadn't been, I'm sure that much more damage could have been done. But the problem is that the people listening didn't verify it with anyone. They should have consulted other sources. They didn't. They just believed what was being told to them. And that's the problem with media and with leaders within the church or any other authority figure is that when they tell you something and you don't check it for yourself, you could be buying a bill of goods. You could be swallowing a pill that's going to poison you and you don't know it. So always check. The Apostle John gave us this warning, quote, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, end quote, 1 John 4, 1. You see, it's our responsibility to vet intel from every source, even from within the church. So let's say, for instance, that one person gives a prophetic utterance during congregation. Is the rest of the assembly expected to just roll with it? No, they're not. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Quote, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. End quote. First Corinthians 14, 29. Weigh it. Weigh it how? Well, I think they would see if it resonates with their spirit, first and foremost. But more importantly than that, they would weigh it against their understanding of scripture. I've come up with a list of seven tests that we can use to test prophecies. So I'm going to go through that list right now. Number one, this is going to be from 1 John 4, 2 through 3. Quote, this is how you can recognize God's spirit. Every spirit who acknowledges that Jesus the Messiah has become human and remains so is from God. But every spirit who does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. End quote. So this is the most basic litmus test. John didn't intend this to be exhaustive, but it was something that was crucial, especially because of Gnosticism. The Gnostics were saying that Yeshua was not pre-incarnate. They're saying that he was not deity. He was only a man. Some of the Gnostics said that he wasn't even that, that he was actually an angel who was given the illusion of being a man. And so if you don't believe the apostles about the identity of Yeshua, then you're following a false gospel. And if you're following a fa false gospel, then certainly the spirit of Yeshua, which Revelation says is the spirit of prophecy, is not going to give you true prophecies. You're going to be speaking lies. So based on this very first test, we can actually rule out one of the largest religious figures in all of history. And that is the prophet Muhammad, the so-called prophet Muhammad, who lived hundreds of years after John wrote his letter, fails the test because he does not acknowledge that Yeshua was the son of God and that he was pre-incarnate. Instead, he said that Yeshua was a prophet like any other prophet, but he was the greatest of the prophets. Islam was started by a liar. Now, I'm sure he didn't believe that he was lying. And by the way, he had been taught by a Gnostic priest. That should tell you something. Test number two comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22, which says, quote, 
But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So this is a pretty simple test, wouldn't you say? If a prophet says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then he's not a real prophet. Imagine that. But the problem is, we're not paying attention to this. We're not actually following this. So God expected his people to kill, to execute someone who was a false prophet. The people of Israel were to bring such folks in front of the judges, and the judges would pass sentence if indeed it was found that this person had prophesied falsely, and then capital punishment was the result. Why? Because it was mutiny. Someone who prophesied by some other god or who said lies in God's name was a mutinous person against Israel and the Lord. We have to get rid of people like that because otherwise they taint everything. They corrupt the whole society. And God was trying to build a society in Israel that would be holy, set apart, that it wouldn't be chasing wrong ideas, that it wouldn't be entertaining lies. So it was important to fully cut off these folks who would prophesy falsely. Now today, since we're not living in Israel, we're not living in a theocracy. Instead, we're living within the the realm of the Goyim. We cannot uphold this the way that God was asking them to. Nonetheless, we can excommunicate people. We can cut them off from fellowship. And that is what we see in the New Testament. We never see that the death penalty is being employed by people in the church. Now, God did kill a couple of people when they lied to the Holy Spirit. But that was God doing it, not human beings. But the human beings who were living in Rome and other such places, not within the theocracy of the biblical Israel, they were not to be killing people in the church who didn't follow the rules. Instead, they were to get rid of them, just cast them out of fellowship. That's the best we can do right now. But we're not even doing that. In fact, most Christians are embracing people that are giving false prophecies. That's one way I know that we're nearing the end of the age is because while people will not listen to sound doctrine and they will not listen to a sound prophet, they are embracing, they are chasing after those who would tickle their ears. Jeremiah 28 is a good chapter to reference. It's about a prophet who spoke presumptuously and was killed for it. I do know of one instance in which people took a false prophecy pretty seriously, and that was in Germany. It was uh, in the 16th century when a man named Melchior Hoffman prophesied that Yeshua was going to return a millennium and a half after the date of his execution. So this guy thought he was executed in 33 AD, which meant that 1533 was the second coming. And he claimed publicly that the New Jerusalem was to be expected to be established in Strasbourg, Germany in 1533. Now, first of all, why would Jerusalem be in Germany? I can't understand that. That right there should have alerted people to the fact that this guy was bonkers because Jerusalem goes in Israel. (laughs) The new Jerusalem is still going to be in Israel in the promised land. So that would just discount him in my mind. But anyway, his prophecy failed. 
And then he was arrested and he died in jail. And I bet that that made the other would-be prophets in Germany think twice. There are a number of prominent figures throughout history who we can discount by using this Deuteronomy 18 test. For instance, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. He called himself the prophet, but he doesn't pass the Deuteronomy 18 test. First of all, there's contradictions between the Book of Mormon and the established scriptures, but beyond that, this guy failed his prophecies. Here's an example. I'm going to read you a quote from a book called History of the Church, Volume 2, page 182. This is eyewitness testimony. Quote, President Smith then stated that the meeting had been called because God had commanded it, and it was made known to him by vision and by the Holy Spirit. It was the will of God that they should be ordained to the ministry and go forth to prune the vineyard for the last time, for the coming of the Lord, which was nigh. Even 56 years should wind up the scene. End quote. So he said that within 56 years of that utterance, the Lord would be coming back. But that was in what the mid-1800s? There are at least six or seven more such failed declarations from Smith. For instance, he said that the U.S. government would be overthrown within a few years of 1843, which obviously did not come to pass. Ellen White is another of these figures that we can discount because she failed the test at the 1856 SDA conference. Ellen White was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist sect. So, although there are some good things that have come out of the Seventh-day Adventists, and I completely agree with the fact that we should be keeping the seventh day as the Sabbath, she was a false prophet, and her prophecies, I'm not saying you can't be a part of the SDA, because I don't know enough about them to be able to say whether overall it's a, a decent denomination or not. But this woman in particular, Ellen White, you should not listen to. Okay, test number three. This is Matthew 7, 15 to 18. Quote, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. By their fruits you will know them. Do you gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree produces good fruit, but the corrupt tree produces evil fruit. A good tree can't produce evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree produce good fruit. End quote. A good prophet will produce good fruit. It's that simple. We should see patience, meekness, kindness, charity. All of those fruits of the Spirit should be present in a prophet who claims to speak from the Lord. Along the same lines, we should ask if this prophet is basking in the spotlight or actually giving glory to God. Because if they give glory to Elohim, then it's not about them. And that is the fruit of the Spirit. But if they're looking for people to put them up on a pedestal, then they're selfish and that does not come from the Spirit. Also, we can look for bad fruit in particular, like gossip, slander, uh, hypocrisy, even things like gluttony. If a man is gluttonous, he's living in sin. Now, this is not to say that there's going to be no bad fruit whatsoever in a person's life if they're a prophet. I don't think that's true because no one is perfect. You know, even a good tree has a few bad apples. But we can ask ourselves, is the fruit of this person mostly good? Do I see them as a set-apart person, a holy person who is living sanctified? And sometimes they stumble, but when they stumble, they get up and they try to do better. That is the kind of a person who, can, who would qualify as a prophet. 
Test number four. Does the prophet only declare pleasant things? We got a whole lot of prophets running around these days who want to declare all of the wonderful and uh, abundant blessings of the Lord upon his people and how great the future is going to be. But they never talk about the difficult stuff. They never point out sin. They never rebuke. Why not? Because when we look in the Bible, the prophets are almost always rebuking. Let's read 2 Chronicles 18, 3 through 34, because this is such an awesome story that illustrates this point. Quote, Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth Gilead? He answered him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in the war. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of Yahweh. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of Yahweh of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man of by whom we may acquire, excuse me, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh. Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, and they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Kenanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says Yahweh, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And he answered, Go up and triumph, they will be given into your hand. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And Yahweh said, who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh, saying, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouths of these your prophets, and Yahweh has declared disaster concerning you. Then Zedekiah the son of Kanana came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, 
which way did the spirit of Yahweh go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, then Yahweh has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah went up to Ramoth-Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and Yahweh helped him. God drew them away from him. For as soon as the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king of Israel was propped up on his chariot, facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset, he died. Wow, (laughs) isn't that a crazy scene? So all these prophets are prophesying great things for the king, but they're just lying because they have a lying spirit. Now, realize this, this does not mean that Yahweh lies. Yahweh was not lying. Yahweh had a prophet in the land who would speak the truth. This was a test. Yahweh had already said in the Torah that he would sometimes send false prophets, that he would allow, not that he himself lies, but that he would allow someone else to speak lies as a way of testing the Israelites to see how they would respond if they would really obey what God had already told them to do and would get rid of the false prophet. So we saw what happened. The real prophet comes and he actually, I'm not sure why it is that he doesn't say what's true right at the beginning. I think maybe he was mocking them or in disgust. He was agreeing with the false prophets just to see what the king would do. But he basically says, yeah, go ahead, go up and fight your battle. And the king is like, "Mm, are you really telling me the truth? Because this sounds too good to be true. So he makes him swear, basically, that uh, he's going to be speaking the actual words of Yahweh. And this prophet says, "Okay, you want to know the real words of Yahweh? I'll give you the real words. You're going to get destroyed and you need to stop listening to these people. Yahweh is giving the king an out. He's giving him an opportunity to listen to the real word of the Lord and to repent from listening to these charlatans. But the king doesn't do it, even though he invited this guy. I mean... He was that close to doing the right thing. He listened to Jehoshaphat and he invited Micaiah. And yet when Micaiah gets there and says something he doesn't like, he just flips his lid and says, you know, take this prophet away and and treat him badly until I get back. The prophet says, you're not coming back. And it was true. So in my experience, real men of Adonai do a lot of rebuking and redirecting. It's less often that you hear them prophesying really great things. Now, that certainly does happen. And throughout the prophets in the Tanakh, we see again and again that they speak about the days that are coming for Israel, which are going to be wonderful. But in the meantime, 
they talk about all the terrible stuff and how we need to repent and how there's going to be discipline and punishment because we're not living the way that the Lord wants us to. But when things are good, they're going to prophesy good things. So it's not that they always rebuke. Test number five, ask Yahweh to confirm if it's true. You know, this one should be obvious. We just need to ask the Lord, but we sometimes forget to. We forget to simply inquire of him. So we need to take the time after hearing a prophetic utterance to go to him and say, Lord, would you confirm this to me? But you must ask with a willingness to receive an answer that you may not like. Because you may get excited by the prophecy. It may be something that sounds great. And if you go to the Lord and say, Lord, is this true? And you're wanting to hear the yes, that it is true then you're biased and you may not be able to discern the voice of the Lord. Test number six, consult someone with the spirit of discernment. Remember 1 Corinthians 14, 29, which we read earlier, two or three prophets are to speak during the congregational service, but then the others are to judge what was said. The other prophets not only have the ability to speak prophetically, they have the ability to discern what is and is not a true prophecy. They should, at least. Not everybody is going to, so this approach stresses accountability and community. We are a body. We help each other to stay on track, and we help each other to understand when something real is spoken that needs to be responded to. 1 Corinthians 14.37 says this, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So someone who was actually operating in the spirit of prophecy would be able to confirm that Paul's writings were from the spirit of the Lord, that they were Holy Spirit inspired writings. That was the test that Paul was putting them to. I think we can test prophets the same way today. Are they going to affirm the scriptures or are they going to argue with them? Because yes, there are a number of people out there who want to put themselves in the positions of leadership over the church, who absolutely don't agree with what the scriptures say, that they will pick and choose what they want to believe out of the Holy Word. And we can't do that. That's a false prophet or a false teacher. Unfortunately, we are just inundated with false teachers these days. And we have been for a while, but it's getting worse. This is not new, though. It's been happening since the beginning. This is what Peter has to say about it. Quote, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. End quote. 2 Peter 2, 1-3 So there are false teachers who are going to introduce heresies because of their greed, and because they want to exploit people for their own purposes. They fabricate these things that aren't true, and people believe them anyway because they're naive of what the scriptures actually say, or they just want to hear nice things. You know, they're trying to please themselves. They're trying to soothe their own souls instead of embracing what God actually says and conforming their lives to it, in which case they'll receive joy. But people are so often very stupid and they will not go through the difficult feelings to get to the reward. That's what we're supposed to do. It's the word says, you know, we all start this journey in a place of pain. 
We all have to learn to fear Yahweh. Otherwise, we would never turn from our old ways. If there was no pain in living sinful, then we would never turn away from sin. So we all start in that place. But unfortunately, some of us forget. We get so comfortable in the mercy of God that we forget that we still have to work out our salvation. We still have to pursue truth. And that means sometimes dealing with the pain of the truth because truth hurts. It does. If we're not in line with it, it hurts. So anytime we're not in line with it, we need to embrace the pain of that so that it will motivate us to change. So that was what Peter said about it. But Paul also has something to say about self-serving Christians who misrepresent Adonai. Quote, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. End quote. That's Romans 16, 18. That just backs up what I was just saying. Man, these folks, and there are so many today. Think about Creflo Dollar and Joel Osteen and so many others who talk such a good game. They are smooth operators. And if you will just continue to sow a bigger and bigger seed into their ministry, then the Lord will bless you so abundantly you won't even know what to do with it. It'll be delivered to you, pressed down and flowing over, and you're never going to have want for anything else in your life. You're going to be able to buy every single car you ever wanted. You're going to get the house that you wanted. You're going to have a great family that never has problems, and your kids are always going to do what you tell them to. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Come on. That's not the word of God. You will have tribulation in this life. You will be taken advantage of in this life. Think about the admonition of the book of Hebrews. It talks about the people of whom the world was not worthy. They were persecuted. They were poor. They walked around in the desert without anything. They hid in caves. They had to eat locusts and honey. I mean, if you're really chasing after the Lord... There's a good chance. Now, not everybody who follows the Lord is going to be poor. I'm not saying that. But there is a good chance that if you are doing God's will, you are not going to be materially that blessed. God will give you seasons of blessing. You will have times when you have material prosperity because God has a purpose for it and you need it at that point. But very often you will be taken care of, but you will not have more than you need. Let me put it this way. You're going to be joyful in the Lord and doing his will regardless of the circumstances. Because the circumstances of this temporary earth don't matter. Yeah, they matter a little bit right now, but in the big picture, they don't matter because it's all gone in an instant. Life is just the blink of an eye and then it's eternity. So when we live for eternity, very often we do not have prosperity now. But it is very difficult for the wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. So be very careful about these people that tell you that you should be wealthy, that you should be blessed in all these ways. And life should just be, you know, hunky dory. Because, in fact, the more that we serve him, the word says, the more that we're going to get pressed down because of it. We're going to be oppressed. We're going to be hurt. We're going to be persecuted. The world is going to hate us. It's not going to want to give us money. It's going to hate us. You speak the word of the Lord at work, they're going to fire you. They're going to find ways to get rid of you because they don't want to hear it anymore. (sighs) So to end this teaching, I feel like I need to issue a specific warning against a growing movement within the modern church. 
and actually goes by two different names. I think I'm not super familiar with all of this stuff. I've only recently been learning about all of it, but I recognize it as being a big issue. But it's called Word of Faith and the New Apostolic Reformation. Two things that share a lot in common. The Word of Faith movement, which has been around longer, and then the New Apostolic Reformation, which is a newer thing, but they overlap to a large degree. And all and these two can be lumped into the larger, somewhat nebulous apostolic prophetic movement. Hold it right there, watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for everything under the sun when we take three minutes to hear from the watchman's wife, Amanda Lawrence. I'm just going to say it. Being compassionate, patient, gentle, and kind to children does not come naturally to me. Don't get me wrong. This does not mean that I am uncaring, impatient, rough, and mean to them. I work with kids every day, and I have an amazing stepson, and the Watchman and I plan on eventually expanding our family. But I have a hard time when one of them cries over a wound that is barely visible or an insult that was barely a slight. I'm impatient when I'm on the phone with a doctor going over test results and a child can't wait to tell me, again, about the size of his new Nerf gun. I want to be a cross between Mary Poppins and Jesus, and I condemn myself when I miss the mark, which is, of course, all of the time. I was talking to my friend about this the other week. I was bemoaning the fact that I was going to be a terrible mother one day, and she said, Amanda, no, you're not. You don't have enough practice with it. These things just don't come that naturally to you, but that doesn't mean that they can't be learned. And she's right. She's 100% right. There have been other areas of my life that Yeshua had to come in and wreck and completely rebuild from the ground up. Quite frankly, being monogamous was not something that came naturally to me before Jesus. He's the one who taught me how to be a wife. He's the one who taught me how to be a faithful partner. He's the one who taught me that I don't have to make my husband jealous every time that I feel like I'm not getting what I need to out of that relationship. So if he can make me faithful and loving and gentle and respectful and honoring of my husband, then he can for sure make me an incredible mother. After all, I'm a new creation in Yeshua. We all are as soon as we accept him into our lives and we surrender every area. And I think that being a mother was something that I haven't surrendered yet, that I feel like I have to have all of my ducks in a row. I feel so unqualified in so many areas of my life. And that's because I am, because I can't do it all. I can do nothing apart from Christ I'm deciding today to give myself more grace and more patience and to remember that I need more practice in certain areas. I need practice really listening and connecting about Legos. I feel like this is more of a rambly everything under the sun segment, but I just want to encourage you today that if there is something in your own life that you feel like you're missing the mark, that you're coming up short, that you're constantly not where you want to be, to give yourself grace and to remember that we do have the power of 
Yeshua. We have the authority through his name to use that in our lives and to, to harness his power. So we don't need to feel like we're never going to be enough or that we're too much in one area. So in ending, I wanted to throw in a note here. I know that after the deep discussion that the watchman has, this might seem like Christianese kind of tossed in here in the middle, but I think it's important to remember some of the foundational things about our faith. It is so important to understand prophecy, to understand the deep, hard-hitting topics that take a lot of study and a lot of research and a lot of time. It's also important to remember the basics about forgiveness and about the power of Jesus' name. Sometimes these things get lost because we've heard them from Sunday school on up and we forget how instrumental they are in our lives. So that's where I come in. I drag you back to your Sunday school days for a brief reprieve and then the watchman yanks you back out into reality. Excellent. That break gave me time to finish a cup of turmeric ginger tea. So the apostolic prophetic movement got started over a century ago, and it keeps morphing. But it really kicked in the high gear with the ministry of a man named William Branham in the late 1940s. Branham may have been operating in some kind of supernatural gift, because he did seem to get words of knowledge about people, and he did seem to heal people, or at least many people claimed that they had been healed by Branham. He himself claimed to be a great prophet, and he influenced a lot of people. He really changed the the course of the church in the 1940s and 50s. However, he was a false prophet. He made several prophecies that failed, like a claim that Los Angeles would sink into the ocean before his son became an old man. And he claimed that he would have a great success during uh, this uh, 1951 planned trip to India, but that never happened. The trip was canceled, and when he did go again later, it was not a great success. But the one that sticks out the most to me is when he spoke really wonderful things over the congregation of Jim Jones. Yeah, that Jim Jones, the cult leader who got hundreds of people to kill themselves with some kind of a poisoned punch. Would a real prophet of Yahweh prophesy good things over the cult congregation of Jim Jones? Come on. No, of course not. A real prophet would have gone in there and rebuked those people and tried to rescue them out of there. He would have tried to draw them away from such a cult leader. He would have warned them about what was coming. But William Branham didn't do that. He went in there and said, you know, great things are coming, guys. William Branham also claimed to be the Elijah who would come, the one who would set the stage for the return of the Lord. But then he died prematurely in a car accident. The Lord did not come. The stage was not set in any <clears throat> in any sense that we can imagine. And which of the prophets in the scriptures ever died by accident or prematurely? I can't think of any. They may have died of old age, some of them. Um, they may have died because of persecution. But none of them died by accident or some sort of you know, natural cause other than old age. William Branham's ministry was in large part responsible for the new order of the latter reign, the charismatic renewal, the shepherding movement, 
and the third wave movement, and probably more that I'm not bringing up. And these things led to a variety of charismatic, apostolic, prophetic sects, which all believe that God is restoring apostles and prophets to the church now to make it as great or greater than the early church. I think they misunderstand what an apostle is, but anyway, it sounds nice. But it isn't our place to appoint prophets and apostles. God does that. The people in these movements are self-appointed prophets and apostles. They have nothing to show. Now, their followers will claim that they have done miraculous healings, etc. But if we put them to all seven of the tests that I already talked about in this episode, you'll find that they are not prophesying from the Lord. They are not speaking the words of Yahweh, even if they're able to do some miracles. Remember, many people will stand before Yeshua on the day of judgment and say, did we not do prophetic things, miraculous things in your name? Do we not cast out unclean spirits in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. And also we're told that in the last days, there will be lying signs and wonders done by the adversary. So we can't simply trust a sign or a miracle by its own merit. We have to test the spirits. So God anoints a man and then he does and teaches awesome things through him to demonstrate that this guy is his chosen spokesman. And we have to ask the question, are the leaders of these charismatic groups living up to the offices of prophet and apostle? Is God doing awesome things through these people? I don't have time to get into a history lecture right now. Well, I've got, I've done some history lecturing already, but I don't have time to do a lot more, but I highly recommend that you do some research on these leaders that have followed Branham. We're talking men like Bill Hammond, Earl Polk, Mike Bickle, uh, Bob Jones, Paul Kane, John Paul Jackson, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Hagen, Rick Joyner. I could keep going. You're going to find a smorgasbord of failed prophecies, heresies, and bad fruit from these men. Not only that, but you're going to find some totally screwball doctrines that have sprung up from these movements. Um, kingdom theology, dominionism, manifest sons of God theology, Joel's army fantasy. I don't even know what to call that. Is it a doctrine? These things are just wrong and dangerous. And now I'm not saying that all charismatic churches are bad because they're not, but we have to be careful. A lot of bad fruit has come out of this. One monumental event that everyone needs to be aware of is the New Apostolic Reformation gathering in Lakeland, Florida on June 23rd, 2008. It was to commission Todd Bentley as an apostle. This commissioning was led by uh, C. Peter Wagner. C. Peter Wagner. He's the self-appointed super apostle, supposedly, who named the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And with him there in full support were Bill Johnson of Bethel, Rick Joyner, Cheon, John and Carol Arnott, and of course, Todd Bentley. And Todd Bentley, while while the others are speaking, is standing behind them, swiveling his head back and forth like something out of the exorcist while grinning like the Cheshire cat. It's one of the weirder things I've seen. He just looks like a, a goofball back there. Anyway, this is what Wagner spoke over Bentley. Quote, I take the apostolic authority that God has given me, and I decree to you, Todd Bentley, your power will increase, your authority will increase, your favor will increase, 
your influence will increase. I also decree that a new supernatural strength will flow through this ministry. A new life force will penetrate this move of God. Government will be established to set things in their proper order. God will pour out a higher level of discernment to distinguish truth from error. New relationships will surface to open the gates for the future. End quote. And all the supposed apostles and prophets are on stage nodding in accord. Then one of the apostles, after he spoke for a bit, placed his hand on Bentley's forehead and boom, he dropped like a sack of potatoes, slain in the spirit. Yeah, gag me with a spoon. Here's the problem. Within two months of that declaration, Bentley's revival completely fell apart and it was revealed that he was having an affair with someone in the church. He later abandoned his family for this woman. And it was revealed that he was a fraud with no evidence validating his claims of healing miracles and supposedly raising someone from the dead. And it was revealed that he was conducting revival meetings drunk and he was in regular contact with an angel named Emma. Does that sound apostolic to you? Whoa. You see, followers of things like the NAR are often so eager for signs and wonders that they will accept nearly any heresy or outrageous claim as long as it's accompanied by what appear to be miracles. Sometimes it's called pragmatism. Also, there's this growing effort within NAR and the Word of Faith sect to reunite with the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church. How much pain did we have to go through to get out of that? It took a lot to get away from. The Reformation was a turning point in history that basically brought us out of the Dark Ages. And now they want to go back to the Roman Catholic Church? Oy vey. So please be careful and be aware because it's not like the NAR and other movements like it are easily discernible as a, a separate organization. It's not like they're a denomination that's going to send a leader to you to ask you to switch over to their denomination. Or it's not like there is a church that your friend is going to drag you to that has NAR written on the front of it. This is just a diffused style of Christianity that makes inroads into all kinds of congregations. But you can learn to recognize that there are hallmarks. There are certain words and phrases that they use, certain leaders that they look up to, certain books that they read, certain doctrines that they espouse, uh, so that you know even people who are within your congregation who display these hallmarks might be part of the movement and might be influencing other people in your congregation to start thinking that way. And eventually that might make its way up to the leadership. Um, certainly if any NAR adherents are brought in as guest speakers at your congregation, um, that can be very influential and dangerous. So be aware of that. I'm not trying to send you on a, a witch hunt. You know, I don't want to start a lynching or anything. <laughs> I just want you to be aware that if you're seeing these hallmarks, you might need to start having conversations with people. You might need to educate yourself on it more and be able to rebuke gently and love some of these behaviors. Now it's your turn to direct the conversation. It's listener Q&A. My name is Richard Jenkins. And my wife, Charlotte, and I are both uh, Texas A&M graduates. We live down in New Valley, Texas. I'm, I'm really curious about the the Shemitah cycle in in the way that it 
I've heard it often talked about that it's on a 50-year cycle, and and I don't have time to, like I said before, to, to dig in the Bible and study this out or dig in the scriptures. But it seems to me that that as a cycle of seven, that the, the 50 doesn't really work out quite right to me. It, it seems to me if we're working on a, a seven-day Sabbath, and it immediately starts another seven-day cycle, the same thing with the uh, Shemitah cycle. I, I said Shemitah a while ago, but I meant the Jubilee cycle. Um, but the, the Shemitah cycle is a seven-seven cycle that starts again with one after the seven. It, it seems to me that wouldn't the Jubilee year be on that seventh-seventh? Wouldn't it be the 49th year and then begin again? Or... If not that, would it be that the 50th year is also overlapping the first year of the next Shemitah cycle? So anyway, that's my question. I uh, hope that wasn't confusing because I called it the wrong thing in the first place. But um, I would love any kind of uh, insight you can give me into that. I would certainly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for your question, Richard. Is the Jubilee cycle 49 or 50 years? It's a good question. I was just talking about this actually with a listener named Mark Svoboda. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Svoboda. Uh, in any case, he believes it's 50 years. I lean towards the belief that it's 49 years, but it is difficult to ascertain. Let's go ahead and read the passage that has to do with the Jubilee from Leviticus. Quote, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all of your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee it shall be holy to you. End quote. Leviticus 25, 8-12. So first of all, we need to note that we can't really keep the Jubilee in the way that it was supposed to be kept because we're not living in the land. If we were living in the land, we certainly could. But now we can't. However, in, in general, it is a year of release. It is a year when we should be letting go of all debts. We should be letting, um, if we had indentured servants, we would be letting them go. We don't these days. So that doesn't matter. Um, we should not be farming, we should not be sowing or reaping. So it's a time that's set apart as a holy year, and it is a time for rest. But the question is, when does the cycle start and end? Are we starting the next Jubilee cycle after the 50th year is completed? Or are we starting the Jubilee cycle after the 49th year is completed? It makes a difference. A Jubilee cycle of 50 years falls out of sync with the Sabbath year or the Shemitah year cycle because 50 is not a multiple of 7. You can divide 49 by 7 and you get 7. But if you divide 50 by 7, you get something with the remainder. Thus, you'll find some groups like the Pharisees say that we must use inclusive reckoning when counting the 50th year, so that the 50th year is also the first year of the next cycle. That way you don't upset the Shemitahs. That makes sense to me because the week is always seven days 
even when there's an additional um, holy day that's plugged in somewhere in the middle of the week. So if you have Passover on a Wednesday, then you wouldn't extend the week by a day. It just fits in there and the seven cycle, the cycle of seven keeps going without interruption. I think the same thing should be true of the Shemitahs, that you should not add an additional year in there and throw off that cycle of seven. That's called inclusive reckoning. And with that reckoning, the Jubilee year does not interrupt the Shemitah cycle. We find verification of this in the Feast of Pentecost, because the 50th day of Pentecost does not interrupt the Sabbath cycle. We're supposed to count seven weeks. In fact, it says seven Sabbaths. So seven of the set apart weekly days are to occur before the 50th day. And then the 50th day after that seven Sabbath cycle is the day of Pentecost or Shavuot. It's important to understand that we do not then shift the next week so that the so Pentecost always falls on a Sunday because you're going seven Sabbaths, which means the last day of that period is, of 49 days is going to be on a Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath. Then the next day is going to be the first day of the week or what we call Sunday. That would be Pentecost. You do not then start the week after Pentecost. You do not start day one following the 50th day. Day one of this next week is also the 50th day. So there's no shifting happening there. You know, I happen to be with the Pharisees on this one, but also the sect at Qumran in the time of the Pharisees and Sadducees and um, slightly after the time of Messiah, they had books that all agreed that there was a 49 year cycle. So the books of Jubilees, First Enoch, Melchizedek, all support a 49 year cycle. Now, granted, they're all from the same area, the same group of people were keeping these texts. So it makes sense that they would all agree. But nonetheless, uh, the scrolls at Qumran are an example to us of the 49 year cycle. I reserve the right to be wrong on this. I'm not saying I have researched it very in depth and know it all. I might be missing something, but. So far, just based on patterns and, and based on some of the extra biblical books, it does seem like the 50 year cycle is incorrect. The Sadducees disagree with me. The Sadducees would have said to use exclusive reckoning instead of inclusive reckoning. And there were some influential people like Philo the Jew who recognized a 50 year cycle. But I have to look at other things that <clears throat> date from earlier, like the Talmud. And the Talmud supports a 49-year cycle. There are dates in there that you can use to calculate that they were using, <clears throat> excuse me, they were using a 49-year cycle. And the Samaritans definitely observed a 49-year cycle. So those are some earlier accounts that I think that we can use as being fairly trustworthy. And also in the book of Daniel, we find a prophecy about a period of 70 Shemitahs or 490 years which is also exactly 10 Jubilee cycles, but only if those cycles are 49 years each, because 49 times 10 equals the full period of 490 years. So here's what I think happened. I think that the Jewish people got confused about the length of the cycle while they were living in Babylon. There are some things that the Babylonians did that involved 50-year cycles. Take a look, for instance, at the Sumerian Kings list, which you know came from 
Sumer, but then the Babylonians adopted it, preserved it. Um, but I think that whatever the Babylonians were doing got the Jewish people off in regards to the calendar. I also see this as being true with where they start the year because they start the year halfway through what God says is his calendar year. His year starts in Abib, the month of Abib, which is when the barley is ripening, which is right before Passover. Um, but the Jewish people start Rosh Hashanah, their new year, in the seventh month, um, at the beginning of that month on the Day of Trumpets. So they're actually starting their year. Now they'll say, well, that's the civil year, and then there's a separate sacred year. But never do we find anywhere in the scriptures that God talks about two years, you know, and, and gives any kind of affirmation to a civil year or a, a separate type of year. Now, there were years um, based on when the kings started reigning, and that was useful for historical record keeping purposes. And so the scriptures sometimes will talk about in the, the something year of the reign of this king or that king. That's giving you a milestone saying that, um, you know, after this guy's rule started, we have to count for this many years. But that's not saying that that counting has anything to do with God's sacred calendar. He's not affirming that as somehow being equivalent or on the same level. It's just a, a different timekeeping device that the Jews or the Israelites, excuse me, were using in their history. Um, but God only ever talks about his plan in regards to the year that starts in a beep. So I think they got confused. And then the Qumran community, the Essenes, were trying to reform people. They were trying to help their kinsmen to get back on track. And they would point to books like Jubilees and First Enoch to explain, and Melchizedek, to explain that um, this is how it was done before. And we need to go back to that. They were trying to reform things. So while we're on this topic, I want to take a minute to talk about how we interpret where the 50th year really begins, because in the verse, the, the passage that we read, we see that after 49 years, you proclaim the Jubilee with the shout um, and with the blast of the trumpet, which is what Jubilee means. It means trumpet. Um, but on the Day of Atonement is when that trumpet is sounded. The problem is the Day of Atonement is more than halfway through the year. So if you're proclaiming this year of release in the 49th year, halfway through, then are you talking about the second half of that year being the Jubilee? Or are you talking about the next year being it? So I think there's two ways we have of interpreting this. We can take Leviticus 25 to mean that the proclamation of the Jubilee years starts on the Day of Atonement, but the initiation of the Jubilee isn't until Abib. In other words, they began to exclaim that the Jubilee was coming on the day of trumpet, or excuse me, on the day of atonement in the 49th year. But the actual Jubilee year didn't start until months later when the next Abib came around. And I think this makes plenty of sense because they didn't have mass media the way we have it today. They didn't have instantaneous communication of news. When they wanted to get people ready for something, they had to go out and actually proclaim it. They had to, you know, to go from place to place and make sure that the authority figures in different towns and provinces were proclaiming this, you know, re repeating the message to their people. So it took a little while. And remember, this was only every 
50 years or 49 years. So um, it wasn't something that would have been on people's minds regularly. They wouldn't have been really ready for this. They needed to be prepped for it. So I think they announced it on the Day of Atonement and started spreading the word thereafter. And on the next Abib, which would have been the beginning of the 50th year, that was the start of the Jubilee year. But we could interpret it another way. We could suppose that the 50th year referenced in Leviticus 25 is speaking about the civil year, which does start halfway through the sacred year. So the midpoint of the 49th sacred year would then correspond with the beginning of the 50th civil year. And that seems to make some sense because the Day of Atonement is just right after that civil year begins. So you might be talking about two different years. But I reject that because I don't see God making that distinction. Like I said before, he always talks about his year as beginning in Abib. He never talks about a separate year that has anything to do with the keeping of the holy days. So I don't think we can mix these two types of years together. The other thing we need to realize is that no one knows when the Jubilee years are anymore. They've totally lost track of them. We don't even know when the Shemitah is necessarily, although there's some evidence that we might be able to use to really nail down the Shemitah year and make sure that it, it is when they say it is. Um, and that's a study that maybe we can do at another point. But we certainly don't have any solid evidence to tell us when the Jubilee year is. Now, there's a, a woman named Nora Roth, an author who theorizes that the Exodus coincided with a Jubilee year. And I think that's a very good theory because the Exodus was the release and the Jubilee is the, the year of release when everything is reset. So the Exodus being a great reset seems to be a fit for that. Um, and then she proposes that, they're, that they left Egypt in 1367 B.C., and that's where I disagree. I think 1367 is way too late for the Exodus. But uh, because of the uncertainty, it's all rather academic at this point. If you'd like to have Watchman Alexander answer your question in a future episode, please send an email to questions at watchmanalexander.com with your city and state or region in the subject line. If you would like to send me a question, please send it to me in audio form. Record yourself on your cell phone or on your computer and attach that file to the email that you send me so that I can let everybody else listen to you actually asking your question because I think it's much more interesting that way. Also, I'd like to let you know that I'm available for hire as a speaker and an artist. If you appreciate my teachings and you think I have some value to add to your congregation or your group, please let me know. There's a speaking page that you can take a look at on my website. It's watchmanalexander.com forward slash speaking.html. And you'll find a little bit about what I do there. And you'll have an opportunity to listen to a speaking demo. Also, I ask you to please rate this podcast on iTunes. It would be a big help to me because all of those reviews are used by algorithms to determine how many people see my podcast. So if I'm going to get more exposure, it's going to be because people like you spread the word and also give reviews on iTunes. So please take that into consideration. All right, that wraps up episode seven. Next time on Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, we're going to talk about what we should expect to see as we approach the end of the age. Until next time, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchman out. Watchman out.